Welcome to the Tipping Point. Hello. <laughs> Brought to you by the People's Empowerment Project, also known as PEP. It's a good acronym. PEP Action. Technically. So oh, PEPA. Ooh, PEPA. I like that. PEPA. Okay. It is this, it's December 15th, 2018, and we're in Kingston, New York. Welcome, welcome. We have with us, as always, Matthew Edge, who is the executive director of PEP. I am John House, and with us also... Again, a returning champion, Hallie Canada. What's up? And I'm going to say that you are a educator, activist, uh, environmentalist. I, I was thinking outdoor enthusiast. So, outdoor for enthusiast. from a psychic level, I think you you did a a minus and a mathematician. Let's be honest, mathematician, which is good to have <laughs> you here tonight because we're talking about. Elections. Yeah, we're doing it, right? We've got a bunch of Democrats coming in. We've got Donald Trump in the White House. We don't know if we can get him out even with a crowbar or felonies. There's a lot of stupid ways to talk about the 2020 elections, and I feel like we're trying to take a different take on it. All right. Yeah. The non-stupid attack. Okay. Yeah. So the idea here is basically that we, before we get like emotionally attached to a particular persona, a particular candidate, before yeah. we join Team Blue – or whatever team we're on, let's design the criteria. Let's think about about what the perfect best candidate to beat Trump looks like. Yeah, and I guess part of the reason that that would make sense is because in, like, 2016, it seemed like kind of the candidate chose to be the candidate. Like, like, Hillary Clinton chose to kind of be the Democratic candidate. She said, I'm going to be the candidate, and then uh, enforced her will upon that process. And said, I am the candidate. And a lot of people didn't enter the race because she said, I am the candidate. Mm-hmm. So we're saying, okay, why don't we say this is what we want from a candidate and then find that candidate mm-hmm. and then get a democracy? <laughs> like, wouldn't that be Or nice? at least see which of the candidates that are out there stack up well compared to our, our perfect hypothetical candidate. Okay, but one thing we're not going to do today. So we're going to talk yeah, about some of the elements or qualities of what we want in a candidate. And we're going to try to weigh what those qualities or elements like how how important are they? Like is that is it is the most important thing? Blah blah blah, or is it liberty blue? Um, but we're not going to talk about actual candidates. We're not going to say like oh, I like Beto O'Rourke or Elizabeth Warren. We're not going to do that, right? We're we're going to leave the names out. We're going to talk about what we actually want, right? That's the idea. Yeah, I think it's great. Great. Okay, so twenty twenty, Hallie, how bad do you want to beat Trump? Like how important is it? Like is it a spiritual fulfillment? To have Trump lose that election. No? I don't even think of it as, like, a consequence of my own personal will. I think of it as inevitable. Okay. Good. That's very positive manifestation mm-hmm. there. I like that. It's not my intention of manifesting. It's truly my inner core belief. Okay. So you're like, seeing the future. Well, we're seeing now this tipping point, as you said, Matt, of, like, dude, whatever you've got going on over there, I'm, I'm sure that the American <laughs> public knows – Really, just a very minor slice of what that guy has been involved with. Yeah, like some sketchy. That ship's going down. Okay, so you you think that that I'm mostly concerned about. You're more who... confident than I am. I think just a little bit. <laughs> I mean, optimism does reign in my kingdom. I, I, beyond my brain's power. I, believe me, I I think we should think positive. I love the like. Let's just do it. Like no questions. Let's just do it. Like it seems inevitable. It needs to, to me. happen. He's not. It's 
only 2018 and things are not looking good for him. But whatever. This but is not about We just him. have to prepare for the worst. Like, we're in, like, a major global <laughs> crisis with climate change. And, like, if he wins, it's a disaster. So, like, we can, like, pray that, like, the tectonic plates or whatever are going to take him down. But I also think we need to start thinking ahead. Okay. so And I think that my biggest concern is not whether he's going down, but who it's going to be. Okay. In regards to climate change and every other issue that scares the pants off of us. Like, who, who is it going to be? Because that is going to make a big difference in the next 20 years. Yeah. I mean, I, it seems, it seems like the Democrats would have to beat him, right? He lost the popular vote. He's under investigation for a whole slew of, crazy schemes he is wildly unpopular yeah. he, he is inarticulate standards. he's lashing out constantly and I, I i also think and this is not another conversation but i think that the trump economy is going to unravel as it usually does which is like if it's not based upon anything real like living wages or like debt-free living that it's going to unravel so yeah it, but the democrats are known to fumble sometimes. <laughs> They're known to fumble. That's what I'm saying. It, so that's, I, that's what scares me the most. So, so, yeah, but that's what I'm saying. It's yeah. their most attributable attribute. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so I'm not that optimistic because I'm like, oh my god, like uh, Hillary might run again, Bernie might run again. There might be a big rehashing of some of these old battles. There might be baggage. There might be who knows. There's a lot of stuff that goes into this. So again, let's try to figure out the candidate we want before the Democrats push a candidate on us, right? Because yeah. this is the hope for beating. Before Trump. we get divided, before like we we say like I'm in, I'm with this candidate, and we we close our minds to like the better like the best possible candidate. Let's define that first before we we put those glasses on. Before we put those Beto O'Rourke, those Kamala Harris, those you know Kirsten Gillibrand glasses on. One of the factors, one of like these qualities of that candidate that we want, right, is the potential to raise money. From small donations, right? Small amounts of money raised. For me, that's probably the biggest. That's huge. There's very clear evidence that the amount of money you have to run your campaign correlates pretty consistently with your win, your chances of winning. So to even really be serious about beating Trump, we need a candidate that can raise money. And I, I hate that to be the truth <laughs> as much as anybody. I mean, our whole People's Empowerment Project is, is against that principle mm. but it but it's because it's true yeah and it is true that there's that this strong correlation so we need a we need to be able to raise money and if we raise money from corporate interests the candidates are not going to be free to to support the kind of economic true economic populism that will will galvanize the public and not not the fake economic populism. <laughs> well, not which the, is well, no, which is the rampant, fake. I, I really rampant. mean the fake populism, aka racism, is what I'm talking about. Which yeah, is which really is cr- fake populism. It's crazy how close they are to each other, right? Like economic populism that's fake, real close to like super racist. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But the, the you know it, it's 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 yeah. So Hallie, so a Democratic candidate that is not that it, that is not taking corporate money. It's all small donors. A la Bernie Sanders. Do you like that? That's important. What do you think? I mean, I know you know the answer to this question. <laughs> I think candidates that are taking money from corporate donors and like massive entities are can't be relied upon, can't be trusted. Mm. Couldn't be sure. Yeah. Okay. So, well, I do have a counter argument. I have a little counter argument, which is Hillary Clinton 2016 
won the popular vote. She got the most – well, actually, no one no one won, right? The majority of Americans didn't vote. But the second – coming up second with the silver was Hillary Clinton with the most votes, right? Obviously not in Michigan, mm-hmm. not in Wisconsin. But she did it with giant piles of corporate but money. But we should have be- beat Trump by a landslide. Okay. <laughs> like, Obviously like – The fact that she eked out a narrow popular vote victory – like we should have we, we, we with with a with a message that really appeals to to the, the the vast majority of people an economic populist message like we could have won in a landslide. Okay, yeah. Opinion. Corporate money should make a huge difference because it's a lot of money, and we all know the difference that money makes in the elections. Mm. So, but could we all agree that like money, like having like a baseline amount of money to run a presidential campaign? If you don't have that, that's like a dispo- pretty much a dispositive to winning. Can we sure. all just like say sure. that? Yeah. It's not going to happen. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. But I, although I guess – Unless my... you're a celebrity and like you can do the, the, the earned media or something, you know, kind of like Trump did. Well, sure. That's the whole new path, right? But okay. but but that's that's like an exception to the rule. The general rule is if you if you're not if you don't have a certain amount of money, you're not even invited on the media. You're not invited to the debates. You're not serious a contender. And, yeah. and people basically laugh at you. Sure. Although, but again, I guess what my argument is, is that I do see the potential for there being a Democratic candidate who is popular enough and populist enough, but also really at their core, kind of a neoliberal or takes a lot of money from certain kinds of corporate Mm -hmm. entities and could beat Trump. I don't want that to be the case. I don't want that to be – I don't want that to be the Democratic Party because I want there to be at least some party – that is truly democratic. That right. is representing the people. But I, I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe big money can beat Trump. All right. So we've got small donor funding, right? That that would be an important thing. We talked in the last podcast about Better Work, right? About how he raised fifty million for a Senate race. That seems kind of like cool, right. cool so, thing. So it's twofold. A candidate that's successful at small donor fundraising. A, you're you're showing that their mass base enthusiasm behind their candidacy. A little bit of money from a lot of people, and so you, so that you can see that there's a direct correlation with enthusiasm, and and with coming with that is you're going to see you know, those people who gave money are more likely to make phone calls, do door knocking. Yeah, I was blown away by Bernie Sanders and fundraising. Right? I mean, Hallie, do you remember seeing like the him raise that money? I mean, I was like, I was blown away. I was really amazed. Bernie Sanders was beating Obama's like at that point in time door knock records. His phone bank records, like in addition to small donor, yeah. so like I don't know, there, there, that was a clear indication of momentum, yeah, and and power and, and a real groundswell. And so, like, however we sort of conclude this, I think that that when we're looking at who's going to beat Trump, like that needs to be represented pretty heavily. Like, okay, maybe so, maybe there's some disagreement, like you know, so small donor funding, Hallie, yeah. Well, I was thinking that that. The small donor funding is a real indication of growing support. Like maybe this month, I'm thinking back to Bernie Sanders' primary campaigns. You know, like maybe this month, these individuals had never even heard of Bernie Sanders. But next month, they've not only heard of him, but are like ardent, donating, door-knocking, call-making supporters. So just by having this lengthy list of small donor supporters means so much more it's like an indication of this growing sweeping support like this rising wave of the people really being passionate about a candidate 
to like actual so democracy. Can we just like make some some basic agreements here that we all agree that small donor fundraising, the degree to which one is successful, that should be a factor. Yeah, I'm going to agree. That's a factor. And I would say I'd like. Hallie, do we have agreement from you? It sounds like we do. <laughs> I mean, I'll let you. Yes. <laughs> yeah, okay. I agree. It should be a factor. <laughs> we maybe disagree a little bit on well, that's on, what I ha- on how much we should weigh that. And well, it's kind of hard to say because we haven't outlined all the different factors we're going to talk about, but sure. we're going to start that discussion. But the weighing of discussion. it includes all this other stuff that we assume it means. Sure. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's what I would say. Like, I would like it to be 50% or more, at least in the existing election system where you have to mm-hmm. raise money. Right? right. I would like it to be 50% or more, but the reality is because I'm a little bit of a realist pessimist, I'm like, well, maybe corporate money could be Trump. And sadly – Maybe that's not going to be the so but, that that takes it down from a fifty percent. Corporate to money 40%. could beat anything. Well, that's the problem. The I'm, brainwashing machine I'm, and corporate money. I'm feeling like I'm up in the sixty because I feel like corporate money. If if they're if the majority of their money that they're running for office is from corporate money, it means they miss that opportunity to engage and inspire people, and that there that there's a serious lacking of inspiration happening. If 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 that's where their money's coming from. And so I think that that really bodes poorly to, to how they're going to do as a candidate. Sure. Hallie? There's a difference between, like, the impassioned supporters and all the rest of the people who don't know shit about shit, about what's going on. <laughs> Whoa. All right. No, no. I, I agree with you. You know. I mean – People who aren't really paying attention, who aren't really tuned in, like right. all these people who are impassioned supporters and making donations and making donations every week or every mm-hmm. month, and then all these people who like don't really know about it. Right. But we're talking I'm about gonna... doubling or tripling the amount of people donating in campaigns. Yes. And I'm, I'm going to say those people that a lot of them are just they're working a lot. They don't oh, have a certainly. lot of free time. No, I don't. Multi, I, that you know, came kids. out in a bad way. I don't mean to be <laughs> no. bashing. There are plenty of people okay. who don't know shit about shit, so, and that's okay. But <laughs> I would. Let me edit what I said. Just well, in case we can it doesn't cut the whole get thing edited out. out. No, Just I will. In case you I got your back. Don't worry. Don't know about these candidates, the way these impassioned people who are like obsessively consumed with their candidate, yeah, like the be, going through every day of their life, like obsessed with this candidate. There are a lot of people who are fucking busy trying to make a living, trying to feed their family, etc. They're yes. They're not tuned in yet. Great. Sounds better. Um, <laughs> no. And you know what? You, you can live that double life of also being like, Hey man, you, maybe you don't know what the hell you're talking about, but I have compassion for you because the reason you don't is because things are hard, man. You're working two jobs, right? You got a lot of stuff going on. You got tons of debt, blah, blah, blah. Okay. So, but connecting into this, dovetailing into this, right? We're obviously talking about Bernie Sanders a lot. We're kind of talking about what happened in 2016. I can't help it. I can't help it. So let's talk a little bit about, about that platform that appealed to so many people, including millennials, right? This, this, the progressive platform of Bernie Sanders, but now also of Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, right? And that's that's a platform of Medicare for all, free college education or loan forgiveness, and a Green New Deal. Is that a necessity? Do they need to be that candidate? Part of the reason small donor fundraising is important is because it might allow someone to have a platform that is actually a progressive economic platform, right? Because it allows them not to be held up to these corporate right. um you know structures yeah they, can't, like, they don't have to they don't have to they don't have to bow to the feet of the cor- corporate overlords of the lizard people right right so um they so this progressive platform that bernie had because he was doing small donor fundraising mm-hmm. and 
it, it's kind of represented in Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and some of these other progressives who did get elected. Some of them won, right? It, their platform, like we were saying, is some of these three platforms uh, or three points. Medicare for all, free college education, Green New Deal. Does that person – does the person who beats Trump need to have that? Do those well, things – is it well, one, one reason why that's significant is because – who was really inspired by that message in the past? Who who did college affordable college education, Medicare for all, and a Green New Deal affect and, and inspire? And when that message went out from Bernie Sanders, we saw him doubling, tripling the amount of support from of, of Hillary Clinton or Trump got from the youth. And I think as we're designing this this equation to try to, to, to try to gauge who's going to be effective at winning. I think a candidate that can appeal to the millennials that needs to be part of part of the discussion. That needs to be part of, of, of what the winning candidate looks like. Sure. And part of the reason that might be important. We talked about it last time is that millennials are going to be the majority of voters, right? The majority of people out there, it's not going to be baby boomers. It'll be millennials, yeah. right? That's who's going to be voting in 2020, a large number of voters. I feel like millennials into as, as a millennial myself, I'm like kind of cusp. Ex millennial, but like <laughs> as 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 a millennial myself, I, I would like to just put this out that milk toast solutions I don't think really do it for millennials. What do I, you mean by milk toast solutions? I just like <laughs> like to like kind of like I'm going to work with the Republicans to get things done. Like sort of, I don't want to try to solve things in a major way. I don't want like major solutions to big problems. I want to like kind of fix things around the edges and compromise. Which is the the language of the, the the Democrats that are funded by corporations, where you know there's a direct correlation between that kind of language and where they're getting their funding. Those candidates, I don't feel appeal to me, and I think it's pretty safe to say that that's not inspiring to the millennials. I think what the millennials really are gravitating for, because largely because of their survival, is. <laughs> is is linked to it is is the green new deal like seriously looking at that and like a total revamping of our economy to give ma massive jobs programs that saves the world from climate destruction like big solutions to big problems i think that's what's resonating and and i think bernie sanders message it's pretty safe to say that that resonates as per popular support polls measured measuring popular support among youth for bernie as compared to Trump's message and Hillary Clinton's message. I think you see a very clear evidential record there. Okay, so you you think that the candidate needs to support that, right? Like they need to be out front. It's they one of the to... factors. I don't, I don't know how. I'm still trying to decide how much I think that's a factor, but I'm, that's up there. That's, yeah, it's definitely up there. I mean, it does seem like obviously in 2018, one of the major you know issues. Um, was healthcare, right? So one of the major issues is healthcare. People talk about it a lot, supporting the Affordable Health Care Act, trying to destroy the Affordable Health Care Act, uh, pre-existing conditions. So it seems like talking about healthcare will be an important part of any Democratic platform. But I guess the question is, is it Medicare for all? Talking about education and accessibility is important, but is it free college? Like, do those pie-in-the-sky promises actually turn off certain voters, especially maybe voters in certain places that we need? I, I, I don't I think, think it does. I don't think it does as much as, as the mainstream media would have us believe. Mm. It certainly turns off some voters. You think so? These platforms, in, in, to a certain extent, make sense, right? I mean, Medicare for all, if we look at the math, it's a way to save money in the long term. But 
there's a cost up front. And I think that there are a lot of voters up there that they look at that and they say, well, I don't know, right? Because we're we're, we're talking about – Not young win- voters, though. If yeah. we're talking about young voters, I It's mean- true. And that, that is part of the argument here, right, is that millennials, that, that they are in the majority of voters and that young voters don't balk at that price tag, right? And because they – well, also because they know they're going to be around for Well, if it's going to save you money, like <laughs> – But you said that in the long run, Medicare for All will save everyone money. Yes, true. It will. Yes, but the, the the argument is, can we do something big, expensive, and progressive in the short term? Expensive to save money? for whom? Expensive in the sense that we're shifting costs from individuals to the government, which would be a good thing because the government can get cost savings because we can reduce the cost of prescription drugs of surgeries. We can negotiate with drug companies and health company services, but that it's a big, giant, bold plan that could save money but it's to i buy think, in bulk this is what we're talking about buying in bulk saves money but i think but i think part of what you're talking about part of what you're arguing is what excites people and what excites people who are willing to donate to to candidates and what i'm saying and is, what excites millennials what excites millennials in particular but also millennials who are willing to donate because there's a bunch of millennials who are turned off there's a bunch of millennials who are libertarians there's a bunch of millennials who aren't that progressive there's a there are a bunch when you look at Most the stats of the males yeah well <laughs> yeah actually the the, the numbers of, of Millennial women supporting Democrats is like seventy nine percent. Yes, unheard of. Sure, but there are a bunch of these males these, are like fifty eight or something. Yeah, there's it's a bunch of these white male incel millennials. <laughs> I know. I, I work with a lot of these kids, and they're not exactly like, oh yeah, taxes. I mean, they're like libertarian anti tax people. So I'm just saying, I like that platform, but I do think that there is some there is some blowback. There are some negatives for sure. a candidate with I, that. It's undeniable that there there could be some blowbacks, but I think the blowbacks are overrated. So I mean. So, okay, so, so are we in agreement? We're in agreement that we need to appeal to millennials, right? But that's that's a factor. Yes, most. We're, what we're maybe not in agreement about is the degree to which a big, bold vision message that deals with things like the Green New Deal and like really takes on the challenges of our time. How important that particular message is to millennials? Are, are we in agreement that 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 that's an important thing or not? I think it's important not just for millennials, but for other generations as well. Yeah, I mean, sure. I think that if every single person, not just who's registered to vote, but who could be registered to vote, were actually to cast their vote, these are the things that would be important to by far more than 50% of the And millennials don't vote. We're talking about, I mean, the non-voters, like they're the two main strategies within the Democratic Party. The, the rift is those who think we should go after the, the swing votes and those who think we should go after the surge votes. The surge votes are the non-voters. And and I'm decidedly in the camp that we want the surge voters. Let's talk about that 50% of the population that's not voting. Not go after that 1% or 2% that is maybe in the middle or is maybe, you know, Medicare for all. I don't want everyone getting health care. You know, like those – like. It's too big of a plan. Like I, I like that voice. I'm, I'm not sorry, sure what that voice is. Fuck them. We don't need them. Like, oh, fuck those people. They're, damn. There's just there's too mi- too little of them. That those undecided. But get your act together. Well, What's I wrong guess, with those people? I guess I'm gonna say I agree that the Democratic candidate who's running against Trump needs to talk about health care, education, and you know climate change. Yeah, and jobs and jobs. They need to talk about those things. But I'm not. I don't know what that message is because I think there is a reason Democratic candidates say, yes, we need to get health care. 
But there's also a reason that they that they don't say we're going to do Medicare for all. There's a reason. It's because and part of where of, they're getting their money yes, from. Yes, and part <laughs> of it is where they're getting the money from. But it's also because there are a lot of voters out there who maybe, maybe they don't have the imagination, or maybe they maybe they don't have um, they don't have the interest in uh, the good of the whole. But I believe there are a bunch of voters out there, independents and Democrats, who don't who have questions about Medicare for all, and they will because. The the drug companies, insurance companies, and others and corporations are going to continue sowing the seeds of doubt and the seeds of dissent. And that's going to keep happening in 2020. There will be tons of money thrown at this election, and that money is not going to be for Medicare for Democratic all. socialist conspiracy. You know, <laughs> yeah. No, I think, I think you're, the, you can't deny that there's going to be blowback. And we really haven't seen what that blowback is because we haven't had a Democratic candidate that supported – democratic socialism at least one that was in the in the actual election yes right we had a candidate in the primary well in the primary we we got a taste yeah of what that was and it'd be interesting to see what that would look like in the general election we don't know the biggest issues of our time that are affecting us are going to be the ones that are going to drive the most votes i mean like yes like climate change whether whether we can afford our health care and whether we can afford to have an education it's also tricky because these are really big issues and it's so tempting to go black and white with them, like free college education for all. But there are plenty of people who would be like, fuck that. I had to pay through the nose for my college education. Why should they get free college education? Mm-hmm. You know, but like even if we subsidized heavily to the point that sure. like it's crazy affordable and you're not going into $100,000 worth of debt in order to just get a bachelor's degree, you know, it's like. Is it black and white? Is it gray area? How are we approaching these things? This candidate says free college education for all, and this candidate says so heavily subsidized that it's practically free. And other people will look at these two candidates, certain people, perhaps from certain generations, from perhaps from certain viewpoints, will look at these two candidates so differently, mm-hmm. whereas they're actually fighting for the same thing. Yeah, and that, that gets us into a different point, which is, what does the coalition look like, right? Like, what are the groups that we're uniting together? Like, does a Democratic candidate have to, is it necessary for them to bring certain people to the table, right? Like, can you have a Democratic candidate beat Trump if they're, like, hard on immigration? Like, they're kind of like, uh, we need to make sure our borders are tight. Because there's going to be some Democrats who are going to be chasing that and saying, like, yeah, immigration's an issue because I'm trying to be more Trumpian or something. There's going to be a, a wide diversity of opinions expressed. So what does that coalition look like? Who do we need in that coalition, right? Like, obviously, part of our argument would be, well, we definitely want real progressives in the coalition, right? People who actually want to use government to solve some problems. We want young voters in the coalition because they're the majority of people. But what about labor? What about black voters, right? What about women? Like, who do we need in that coalition? Do we need a candidate who who appeals to certain groups in particular? Like, who can't be left out, you know? And, and which candidates are unable to bring together coalitions? I think one of the factors that we need to look at is which coalitions of people do each candidate bring to the table? And are there any gaps? Do some, some candidates naturally, because of who they are, because of what they say, bring together a certain coalition and others not? Sure. And I think that's one thing that needs to be weighed. Uh, yeah. And that, that is really – that's a very candidate-by-candidate candidate thing, right? But one of the things we can say is that, like, sadly, because of the structure of our electoral system, yes, having black voters in the, in the coalition is incredibly important, right? Black women in particular 
are the reason we had a blue wave, right? So it's important to have them there. But sadly, in a presidential election, some states don't count as much as others, right? So in that coalition, we may have to focus on certain people, right? And and one of the things we we, we might want to talk about in there is the northern path, right? Is the reason that Trump won is that there were certain states that went for Trump. What's the northern path? Can you talk about it? Can someone mention a little bit about where did this come from? Is it Nate Silver? Is that where it came from? Yeah. Yeah? So so the, the northern path, what is it? Wisconsin, what, what Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Mm. So the argument is that ultimately these elections are decided by certain states. Yeah, we might shift our campaigning tactics and the different things that we're campaigning for, healthcare for all, et cetera, as we were just discussing. But ultimately the state is reliably going to vote. Democrat or the state is going to reliably vote Republican. Louisiana is going to vote Republican right now. In Connecticut's going to be blue. <laughs> but some states are more are closer to the boundaries. So let's pay attention to those states because those are the states because of our electoral college system that are going to decide the vote. Yeah. Okay. So what are those states? So it's, what it's states basically, are we yeah, about? It's basically like a low hanging fruit strategy. It's like, what's the easiest states the Democrats need to to win? to to beat trump okay so what are those states wisconsin michigan pennsylvania okay a few years ago someone might have expected ohio or even missouri to be on that list Mm. but those states have gone red and then there are other red states that are tending towards blue like arizona yeah arizona and then in new mexico and colorado used to be more swingy now they've trended pretty solidly blue, as as with Virginia. I like that swingy. They're, they used to be swingy. Now they're not. Now they're not. They settled but, down in their old age. And, and, yeah. and, and, and the and other <laughs> Colorado knows news. Ohio used to be really considered swingy. Yeah. And now it's kind of gone pretty red. Sure. But Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan are still relatively safe democratic states i mean sort of tr- this last election with trump winning them was sort of an anomaly there are very close margins but historically speaking spe- historically speaking historically speaking <laughs> historically speaking those are states that have really trended democrat and i think we have really good reason to believe that trump was an anomaly and looking forward those are very winnable states. They were underinvested in by Hillary Clinton in the last election. A candidate that can appeal to people in those states is going to do very well in the Electoral College math. And so though, so as much as I think it, that, that the Electoral College system is unfair and it's absolute bullshit that some people get much more say than, than the rest of us, tactically speaking, we need to take into consideration those states and which candidates are going to have a message that's going to resonate with them more than others. Okay, yeah. And it's worth noting that Bernie, in the Democratic primaries of 2016, won Michigan and Wisconsin. He could, yeah, and like by significant margins. Like, mm. And Michigan, I think, was the biggest poll miss in modern politics history. Like they thought Hillary was going to win, and Bernie came out of nowhere and won it. Mm. Um, and that's 16 he did, electoral he didn't lose, votes. Or he didn't win. Excuse me, he didn't win Pennsylvania. No. But he was close. He he did decent in Pennsylvania and won the state. So it's, well, it's Pennsylvania is a unique state. <laughs> it's, yeah, and Pennsylvania is hard to put in a box. But uh, it is interesting that the, these Wisconsin, Michigan, Rust Belt states, like you know, very affected by NAFTA. Ohio has shifted red. 
But despite that, Sherrod Brown, an economic populist, has done very well in statewide elections in Ohio. And so that suggests that a certain economic populist message will resonate in the Rust Belt, Bernie, Sherrod Brown. So that that's interesting, though, because that, that seems to upend a little bit of this conversation, right? Because if we're talking about who can win Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, those they're very unique concerns there. They're ones that Bernie Sanders did speak about, right? He spoke about NAFTA. He talked about the loss of manufacturing jobs. He talked about economic inequality. He talked about poverty. Um, but that's not exactly what we're talking about with the progressive platform, right? We're not talking about getting those jobs back, right? We're not talking about the unique concerns of those states. I, I, I mean, a, a message, an economic populist message about inequality and poverty, sure, I mean, that to a certain extent will play in Michigan, Right. It'll play in places that lost a lot of, of manufacturing jobs. But there's a certain kind of messaging that those voters like. Right. It's a certain kind of messaging and it's a certain culture that I think that Hillary Clinton did not understand. And the Democrats have been losing a grip on because they assume they had it locked up with with being pro labor, quote unquote, because, I mean, Democrats haven't really been strong labor for a long time. But they, they believe they had labor locked up and they believe they had those states locked up because they were northern states and they were wrong. Mm -hmm. And what they found in the polling is that those voters in Michigan, Wisconsin, it's not only economic populism they're voting on. It's also identity politics. It's other things. You know, there are there are a lot of sentiments there that are not purely economic. Right. There's a lot of finger pointing, a lot of blame. There's opiate problems. There's the collapse of infrastructure and communities. There's a lot of different problems there that are very unique. And so maybe this, I mean, for me, this might be one of the most important points in all of these calculations is speaking directly to those people mm -hmm. in those states because that might win it, right? Because we know that New York's going to so, go blue. We know the mass, and it's going to go big blue because people have really strong feelings about Trump and the blue the people out there who are Democrats who don't like Trump really don't like him, and he's going to win certain places by huge margins, and it's going to come down to the suburb, the suburbs outside of Cleveland, and high turnout in in, in Cleveland, in the cities, in, yes. the, in these midwestern cities, and yeah, we can't forget about that. Sure, yeah. So that, and can, that it can't all just be about the suburbs. Sure, and and that does bring us into a thing, and I think this naturally leads us into a question about race, identity, and identity politics. You know what? There, there, there are some real, like, bear traps out there in regards to race and identity politics. Right? It's easy to just wander into one during a press conference in the night and just get your foot stuck in a bad thing. Bernie Sanders just got into some real heat. I've had people who are Bernie Sanders supporters who campaign for him come to me and say they will never support him. He is a racist old man. Uh, and, 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 and it has been a deal breaker because he made some comments about race and racism. So there's a real question here. Do we need a candidate who has a certain identity or has a certain stance on identity politics? What do you think? Yeah, I, I, I'm definitely skeptical of a candidate that makes identity politics front and center of their messaging. Like if that makes it in their top three issues, mm -hmm. I'm, I am worried how that's going to – appeal to the nation because when you're talking about identity politics you're 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 talking about the empowerment of a specific group which me i my personal belief is like i'm all for it but my concern is is it's an unfortunate human tendency that when the, when 
somebody running for president is, is making one particular subset of the population a priority that other people are going to feel left out. And I think it's kind of lame. Not kind of lame. It's incredibly lame. I think it's really it's really sad that we can't see, like, all right, certain people have been discriminated against and hurt by our country, our government, our society. Let's Let's focus on making things better for them. But I wholly support somebody doing that. I do wonder if there are some certain blowback. We talked about blowback earlier from that kind of messaging. And so, sure. well, Hallie, it's tough. You, you identify as a, as a woman, correct? I identify as a woman. And you're living under, correct. you're living under a Republican Trump administration for you is being a woman and seeing women represented in politics and potentially having the issues of women be at the forefront of the 2020 campaign. Is that, is that like one of the most important things for you? Is that is that fifty percent? Is that seventy five? For some people, it's a hundred, right? I mean, like representing fifty one percent of the population who, under this administration, have haven't been well represented. Let's say that. I think there's a difference between making the decision to vote for a woman, regardless of anything she has to stand for, and a difference between voting for a woman, regardless of anything. Mm. And voting for a candidate who has made a commitment to support women in our society, mm. it's a rising tide regardless. Regardless of how any of these politicians actually vote, women as a rising tide is an inevitable consequence of our modern day. So, well, okay, but like if we're talking about that progressive platform – should should that instead of just being Medicare for all, free college education, Green New Deal, should it be uh, accessibility to family planning and birth control? Should that be like one of the top platforms? I mean, will that will that carry the day? There's a lot of women, right, who voted for Trump, who potentially are the swing votes in a lot of these places. Maybe it's not the men in Michigan and Wisconsin. Maybe it's the women, and maybe the way to appeal to them is be like. Yeah, a Trump administration is not good for your rights as a woman. You know, I mean, one of the biggest protests after Trump got inaugurated was women organizing. So maybe there may be a strong argument that that's like the core of what the argument needs to be. Well, medical, Medicare for all includes women. Sure. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and it would include Thanks, family man. planning under it. <laughs> just, just to be clear. Oh, he just popped up the big tent. He's bringing people in. Medicare for I, all. I'm, I, I just think the broadest base messaging. Like, I mean, obviously, like to dump, you know, a b reproductive rights into identity politics is brutal because it's like it's so much more than that. It's it's economic well being, like your ability to like upward mobility in society as a woman. It's hugely affected by your ability to control over your body and so that that's definitely like i think that needs to be a huge issue i think i think with the the, the biggest march in u.s history the women's march happening after this election with the, the just the the general feeling of like really embracing blowback to trump right now i think is very much harnessed within that and so i think sure i i would definitely prefer like Certainly, all things being equal, we prefer a female candidate in this in this election, and, and that's just my preference. But like, I actually do think that that politically speaking, like tactically, pragmatically speaking, I think a woman is better than a man for the for the Democratic okay. nominee. So it's not just identity politics; it's also the identity of the person 
in particular, right? I mean, well, although this is there's, there's a subtle difference, but it's true. Yeah, yeah, although this this we can look back at Hillary Clinton and say Hillary Clinton embraced the fact that she was the woman breaking the glass ceiling, and she does have a history of caring for or expressing care in regards by through policy for women, for children's health, right? And as a supporter of reproductive choice, and she didn't win. Although the counter argument would be she did win. She won the popular vote. And the majority of people for the first time ever in the history of America chose a woman to lead our country and she didn't get elected. So that brings us back to the Rust Belt, right? Again, it's like maybe that's the number one because she won the popular vote. So I don't know. Um, identity. Yeah. So are we weighing, we're putting a weight to this. Does it matter? How important is it? So question. I mean, do, do you guys think that some a candidate that puts identity politics front and center is that more of a liability or more of an asset? Totally depends. Yeah, right. I don't know. It's, yeah, that totally depends. I mean, I guess well, it depends. If on... Hillary Clinton had been a different woman who didn't have such history and such baggage and such, you know, decades of the media training conservative leaning people to hate her, <laughs> you know, she might have won. As the first female president of the United States of America. But just because she was a woman doesn't – like I feel like – It's I think not the whole Im- story. There's an important distinction to be made between identity politics and somebody being from a particularly underserved community or you know, a, a sure. demographic. I think there's an important distinction to be made because I think a candidate like – I think Andrew Gillum was, was really interesting in his, his approach in that he – he he wasn't campaigning like he was a black man, but like the fact that he was a black man wasn't like front and center in his campaign. He was talking about health care. He was talking about Medicare for all. He was talking his message wasn't like I'm out there to fight for black people. Yeah, that wasn't his message. And so I think there's just an important distinction to be made between making identity politics a core part of your campaign and being from that community. And I, I think I think there's a particularly strong talking about coalitions like i think i I actually think if we're going to talk about the perfect candidate i would say a woman of color that supports economic populism a bold message that can inspire millennials because that could maybe make up for some of the the blowback that comes with the identity politics that we saw in in 2018 or 2016 it may mitigate some of that so yeah so part of this sounds like it's it's Ooh, it's a little complicated where this might not be a clear factor, right? Where it, 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 there's a chance that the identity of the person might actually help them. And it, it might be a chance that that same identity might hurt them with other voters, right? And, well, I, it's interesting, though, because it does seem like to me that there is a difference between – in regards to race, ethnicity, and sex. Because I think that a woman running against Trump, the right woman, is could be very – very powerful mm-hmm. right the right woman running against trump can can clearly so how do you define the right woman well i mean this gets into like baggage this gets into background this gets into credentials right it needs yeah. to be a woman who seems uh, who can stand up to him during debates but a woman who maybe is strong on national security i'm not going to name any names but there might be a candidate somewhere out there in the pacific somewhere who has hey, we're not naming names i'm not naming names but but yeah, I mean, I think background and credentials almost matter more 
when it is a person of color or a woman where it's like it, it's almost easier well it's always easier for a white guy to step up and be like i'm an outsider i'm strong i can come in i can change things where that might be hard for a woman or a person of color to say i'm an outsider i don't have a lot of experience because there is a learning curve there there is a judgment there's a bias against those candidates so it's complicated although again hey if if the goal here is that northern path and to win that northern path Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, there are, of course, women and people of color there. But the voters who turned out for Trump and supported him, the real the guys who swang, swang, is that a term? Okay. Were, we'll a make lot, it a term. were a lot of white, working class and middle class people, right? Were a lot of ex-labor or current labor union members. Yeah, well, these are these post-industrial wasteland voters you know these people that like the, the the dying american economy like we were forgotten about too it's not just you know poor black people poor brown people it's poor white people too we're feeling forgotten you sure know, that's what i'm this is again this is i'm just not my 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 thing but it's out there that that's part of what trump's appeal was well, so is it is, it, is it, there's a potential that we can we can motivate those voters with a true populace not this not, let's not blame it on the other let's talk about how we find things that unite us and, and sure so. and, that, and that kind of brings in the last point that i would make that i don't know if it's i don't know it kind of connects to a lot of this is a, a minor point but it became a major point with trump which is the insider versus the outsider right we don't have to go mm-hmm. into it too much but some people really want there to be outsiders who come in and shake things up. People who aren't part of the democratic machine, people who aren't lifelong politicians. Do you guys think that's a factor? Do you do you think that that's what the democratic base wants? Do you think that's what the the mainstream voters want? Do they want somebody who's an outsider? Right? Like there's there's people, Oprah, who knows? Michael Avenatti, right? The oh, lawyer God. for, you know, there's these outsiders who are like complete like do you guys think that would be good? Do you think it would be like maybe that's a factor? Somebody who doesn't seem like they're an insider. Yeah, I think in this this day and age, I think it, we've definitely been trending more like congressional approval rating, government approval rating in general is at all time lows, you know, give or take. And incumbency advantage is on the decline. Like in elections, like usually they would say like you know incumbency is worth ten, fifteen points. Now it's slipping down to like worth seven points. Like being mm. part of the machine is not as valuable as it was back in you know even ten years ago. So. I do think that you – I don't know how much it would rate it overall, but I do think that it should it should be a factor you know, to the degree that they're, they can approach an outside message. I think that there is a clear advantage to be made there. How much it's worth, hmm. I wouldn't give it a lot, but I do think there's a value. Yeah? Hallie, you want an insider, outsider? Does it matter? I think it depends on which voters we're talking about. I think sure. there's a tendency on the part of the baby boomers to think outsiders can't win. So to approach the entire election from the mindset of, like, they're not going to win. Um, and I think that there's a tendency on the part of the younger voters to think anything is possible. And, in fact, mm. insiders are harmful for our future. Yeah. So it depends who we're talking about. I mean, it depends, but it is a factor. Yeah. Well, and I think Bernie Sanders is that example, again, where he – he was an insider in the sense that he was working in Washington. He was a senator. He was a congressman before that. He had for been a long, for a long time. time. But he was an independent, one of the only independents in the Congress, right? And he, he did well among independents who don't yeah. have a, a strong track record of voting. So that was an evidence of 
bringing non-voters out. I think that mm. that almost seems to be its own factor. Yeah, so it's interesting because the insider-outsider thing is kind of a conversation about experience, but also kind of a conversation about small donor fundraising and being owned by corporations, right? Mm-hmm. Like being an insider, quote-unquote, is like kind of like a, a code word for being somebody who's like, you know all the good old boys, you know, you know all the fundraising things, you're friends with all the powerful people. So maybe that is really more small donor fundraising. It goes back to that. Like, is this somebody who's actually an independent person? There's some, some evidence that where you where you have candidates that are speaking at not at a postgraduate education level, um, candidates do better. <laughs> yeah, maybe that should be one of the factors. Like the yeah, what what's I mean, the average the, grade? There's a direct correlation speak? between candidates speaking at a postgraduate or higher. Like the higher the education <laughs> level yeah, that they're yeah, speaking yeah. at, the worse they do. Sure. So yeah. I, I would factor that in. I think that kind of you know, give, given that both. All three, uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, are, are less educated than the average state in the country. I think a candidate that can speak to to the lowest common denominator. Yeah, so that kind of makes me say, like, okay, uh, a candidate who doesn't seem, like, too professorial, who mm-hmm. can speak to the people, who can uh, also, you know, speak to some of the economic concerns of people, um, maybe also doesn't seem completely owned by a corporate entity – um, and appeals to young people, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe that's it. I don't know. Obviously, because his weights, you know, we go back. Although it's interesting because the northern path, that Midwest thing, maybe it's not. Maybe on that deal right there, maybe on that platform is not free college education. Maybe it's infrastructure. Maybe that's what it is. Mm-hmm. If you live in Detroit, if you live in Cleveland, if you live in Rochester, maybe it's infrastructure. The Green maybe. New Deal. Which is Green New Deal, right? Maybe because you can dovetail that into there and say, like, hey, we're going to invest money in American communities and building a, an actual 21st century America that runs on renewable energy and is not full of potholes and, you know, and dilapidated buildings. Maybe that's part of it, right? So maybe the Green New Deal is also infrastructure slash speaking to the troubles of the Midwest. Jobs. Yeah, jobs. See, and I'm it, kind of I, – I don't know, man. I I kind of think – just to throw the curveball in there, I, I love all that. I do. I really do. And I really think that the northern path obviously is key. I think I want somebody who's got that progressive platform, not for me personally, but because I think that it appeals to people and I think that it's, you know, critical for solving problems in the 21st century. But I, I swear to God, I think it comes down to the face, the voice, the name. Like it comes down to these things that are mm. so instinctual like lizard brain things really you know but the name i mean who would have thought barack obama would have won president that's pretty clear i mean pretty clear evidence that that even the name could be overcome but i think your point is greater than just the name but the idiosyncrasies of the actual people this the, the voice the, the celebrities the oh i think i think barack obama's name was an asset to him after the bush administration i think that his name being so strongly I think the rhythm, the sound of it sounds good, and I think that it sounded so un-George Bush, so un-Texas, so un-political dynasty family, so un—I mean, I— So I anti-Trump, really so you think that, that maybe that should be oh, a I think it's to, to what To what degree is, is a candidate the anti-Trump? Oh, yeah. I think sex, gender are so intertwined with health care and so intertwined into, like, the core of—like, the reason Donald Trump might go down— that he might ever even like maybe go in front of a judge or might even go to you know jail someday is because he had affairs with women and paid them to silence them. Ugh. Right? 
He used them. He silenced them. He used his power and wealth to intimidate them. And that is causing him to be – that his lawyer, all the stuff that's on his computer, the reason we're getting that is because of paying Stormy Daniels um, to silence them, right? So I think gender, sex, identity, those things are huge. And, I, I, I mean, a woman named like, um, you know – Jennifer hard working woman or whatever the hell her name is, Jennifer middle class, whatever, and coming out firing and being able to handle her own in a debate that that might trump everything. Pun intended. Um, that, that right, really how they sound in a debate, because I don't know. I just don't, maybe, maybe I'm so jaded that I believe it all comes down to how it plays in the media. And that, and that, and that flies in the face of the Bernie Sanders campaign because it, it really, the media didn't cover him. Mm. Go ahead. Yeah, Hallie. There's one thing that we've learned is like the way that people connect with these characters can determine anything. And like you just said, the media didn't cover Bernie. I remember commuting back and forth between upstate New York and New York City, listening to the radio and wanting to know. I mean, here I am, a consumer, wanting to know about the news, wanting to know about what's happening with Bernie's campaign. And all I could get from even liberal leaning, I'm making quote marks with my fingers, radio stations, <laughs> good radio, good radio. is like, ah, oh, and Bernie Sanders still hasn't dropped out of the race. I mean, fuck <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. That's not what I want to know. There's amazing things happening with this campaign. Well, oh, and that's oh. why small donors needs heavyweight. But that, that's also it brings up the whole thing. We have uh, social media. I mean, Bernie Sanders, he didn't get traditional media coverage. But the reason we all knew right. about him who can is go. because – That's a really good because, factor. Because people like, let's say, me <laughs> were on Facebook constantly sharing Bernie Sanders articles and videos and clips and speeches. So that's another thing is like who can actually use social media? Can they use non-traditional media? Who appeals to non-traditional media and millennials? That might be another factor. You know that I won't name any names, but there are some candidates out there who also appeal to that. So we would call that like reach. Reach to the people. I mean, beyond just people who have like cable still and watch television. <laughs> yeah, new like, me new media stars. New media stars. The kids I work with, they care about YouTube. They don't care about what's on. NBC. So how do we quantify that? We we look at you know hits on on Twitter. We look at hits on Twitter. I'm like that shows my like yeah, we're <laughs> a couple <laughs> years behind. <That's> okay. <laughs> but Instagram, you know, yeah. whatever the kids are using these days. It's, I mean, it's I mean, hard but to that's quantify. a quantifiable thing. I think likes or whatever we want to gauge we can start to look at which candidate is winning the the the, the new media race. the new media yeah. race i think about it as like a rising star and when i think about bernie sanders success as a graph it was consistently rising over time but it didn't start early enough and it was limited by a number of factors including the media including the Democratic Party. Who's going to be the rising star? Who's going to be consistently gaining in awareness, in popularity, so the polls. in passion over time? You know, 2016, Facebook looked at that election and said this is the first election where more money will be spent on Facebook than anywhere else. And obviously, Russian interference and fake news played a huge role in getting Trump elected. So in 2020, new media, Facebook, uh, you know, uh, whatever, Snapchat, Twitter, these things are going to be huge. And the candidate needs to be able to understand that, work with that, utilize it. That might be the factor. That might be the most important factor for them 
you know, succeeding, especially if they're small donor fundraising, because they're not going to be buying ads by the millions. They're going to have to use social media and, and appeal to millennials, right? So, so okay. Well, what I was going to say is I think we got a number of factors, right? And we got some weights behind them. But we're going to try to figure out what we think are these main factors. And what we're going to do in the next couple podcasts is we're going to start trying to really come up with some real math behind those numbers. I right? think we should come commit something. Formula. I think we should commit something to our, our, our listeners that you know for the next podcast, that we, you know, we've laid out these factors that we'll work together to try to come up with some sort of a compromise on what weight we're going to give to each of these things. Uh, I think it's good that we've laid them out, kind of some of our rationale for why we think these things are important, but come to some sort of collective IQ consensus on, on you know, if we average our different opinions together, where where we where we land, and put that out there. We'll put that online. We'll talk about it, why you know why we sort of came to that in the next podcast a little bit, so that we can start applying an actual formula to different candidates. And I also think this should be an evolving thing. And I think I want to invite listener participation. We don't. The three of us sitting here in a room, we don't have all the answers. We don't know exactly what factor is going to be the best. If we said that we did, that we'd be full of shit. But I think we'd be what, the best way that we can try to grapple with this problem is if, if people, listeners, send in their feedback. Hey, wait, this this is the most important factor. Or, or you, you guys forgot to mention this. We want to hear about it. I think we're going to come up with this collectively, organically, and 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 we're going to put out some initial numbers – Hopefully by the next podcast to give people a sense to, you know, just start looking at, you know, how these candidates rank up on, 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 a, on, a, on a uniform set of criteria that's applied to each one. All right. That sounds like democracy, Matt. That's what that sounds like. Sounds like democracy. Sounds like on. math. <laughs> and on that note, please buy... Democracy coffee. Yes, we need we need democracy coffee to get this podcast out there. Um, we're all at basically volunteers at this point, working to to to, to make this happen. Um, so yeah, democracy coffee will allow us to hire a staff to get this out there. You know, make this work. So if you like coffee and you like democracy, put those two things together. Get some democracy coffee. That's right. Use your math. To math yourself some coffee so that we can math ourselves some fundraising. Uh, all right. Good discussion. Thank you, folks, so much. Thank you so much, John. Matthew Edge. Hallie Kananak. Thank you, Hallie. Yeah, thank you. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Peace out.